It's good to be with you again at the beginning of a new week, sharing with you keys to successful living which God has placed in my hand through many years of personal experience and Christian ministry. This week I'm going to continue with the rich and exciting theme that I started with but did not complete last week. God revealed in His names. What we can know about God from the various names given Him in Scripture. Last week I spoke about the two main names for God in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, Elohim and Jehovah. I explained that Elohim depicts God primarily as creator and ruler of the universe. Its main associations are power, majesty, righteousness and justice, and that which is eternal and heavenly. On the other hand, Jehovah, or Yahweh, has different associations. First, it's a personal name, specifically the name under which God relates to man, as person to person. Secondly, the name Jehovah, or Yahweh, emphasizes that this person is unchanging and eternal. So those are the two emphases of the name Jehovah. It's personal, and it emphasizes that that person is an eternal, unchanging person. For these reasons, Jehovah is particularly associated with God's covenants with men, because covenant also is a person-to-person relationship, and covenant also is unchanging and permanent, so that the two main aspects of the name of Jehovah or Yahweh reappear in the word and the concept for covenant. In particular, Jehovah is directly linked with seven specific names or titles, representing seven aspects of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness in his dealings with man. In order of their occurrence, these names reveal Jehovah in the following aspects. First, the one who provides, second, the one who heals, third, the one who is our banner, fourth, the one who is our peace, fifth, the one who is our shepherd, sixth, the one who is our righteousness, seventh, the one who is there or permanently present. Last week I dealt with the first two of these covenant names, the one who provides and the one who heals. This week I'm going to deal with with the remaining five covenant names, commencing today with the third, the one who is our banner. This covenant name of Jehovah is mentioned in the book of Exodus in chapter 17. This records an incident in the experience of Israel on their way through the desert to the promised land after coming out of Egypt. During the course of their journey, one of the Gentile nations in that area, the Amalekites, or Amalek as they're known by a single name, came and sought to oppose Israel's journey to their inheritance. And Israel had to fight to continue their journey. Eventually, Israel was successful in the fighting, and Amalek were defeated, and Israel were able to continue their journey. This is the record of this incident. Exodus 17, verse 8, and then verses 13 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. And then we read the account of the battle, and here's the conclusion. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial, and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. You see, this particular incident is invested with a permanent significance. Because uh, the lesson, as I see it, is that in our journey through life, and in our attempt to enter the inheritance that God has provided for us, we're always going to face opposition. This is not just something that happened once, it's going to happen from generation to generation. And the Lord is going to take our side. He's going to stand with us in the opposition. But we're going to have to fight these battles. And uh, the particular aspect of the Lord's help that's brought out here is in the name of the altar that Moses built, the Lord, my banner. So that the Lord has given us a banner that will bring us victory in the warfare 
that we have to go through. There's much in the New Testament about this warfare. For instance, in Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, we as Christians also are going to encounter opposition and warfare, although our war will not be with physical enemies, but with spiritual satanic forces that will oppose our journey. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, Paul talks about the type of weapons that we need in this warfare. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Not of the flesh means, in other words, they're the opposite. They're spiritual. So God has provided us with spiritual weapons for a spiritual warfare. In Psalm 20, verse 5, in particular, we hear about the banner that the Lord has provided. We will sing for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. So our banner is the name of the Lord our God, and his victory becomes our victory as we set up our banners in his name. In other words, in his name, his victory that he's already won for us in this war becomes available to us when we use the right banner. Now, there's much, of course, about the name of the Lord in the New Testament. For instance, in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul says this about Jesus. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a banner before which all the forces of evil have to bow and yield. And then Paul says, in this way, Christ's victory becomes our victory. Second Corinthians 2.14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So you see, Christ's victory, which he won over Satan on the cross, is made available to us. But one condition that it's available is that we use the banner that God has provided us, which is in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the name of the Lord is our banner in this war. As we continue to look at our banner, the name of the Lord, I want to just show you briefly from the Old Testament scriptures and from history the significance of the one who carried the banner in an ancient army, the banner or the standard. Describing the defeat of a large Gentile army, the Assyrian army, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 18, says this, They shall be as when a standard-bearer fainteth. Now when the standard-bearer fainted, the whole army was in disorganization, because ancient armies were trained that if they were hard-pressed in battle and liable to be uh, divided and separated from one another and lose contact, the standard-bearer would find some kind of eminence, a hill or something, and lift up the standard, and the soldiers were trained to regroup around the standard. But when the standard-bearer fainted, then there was no place for them to regroup. That meant real serious problem in the army. But in our case, for us as Christians, our standard-bearer is the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 59:19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. See, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is our standard bearer. And when we're hard-pressed by the forces of Satan and they're coming in like a flood against us, the good news for us is that our commander-in-chief directs our standard bearer, the Holy Spirit, to lift up the standard and we regroup around that standard the standard being the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is our gathering point, our rallying point. And when we're hard-pressed in this Christian warfare, the Holy Spirit lifts up that standard, which is the name of the Lord Jesus. And when we see his name uplifted, we gather there. See, that's what's happening today. All across the earth, the Holy Spirit is lifting up afresh the standard of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's people are rallying to that standard, irrespective of denomination or other things that have separated them. Finally, look at this picture of the victorious church in the Song of Solomon. 
Song of Solomon 6, verse 4, You are beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as awesome as an army with banners. And again in Song of Solomon 6.10, Who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners? That's the bride of Christ, but it's also the army of Christ. The bride is also the army. It's very interesting in the two closing pictures of Christians in the epistle to the Ephesians, the one but last is the bride and the last is the army. So we're both the bride and the army, and we're going to come forth on the stage of history as prophesied there in the Song of Solomon, like an army awesome with its banners. Remember that our banner is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been dealing with the seven specific names or titles that are directly linked in Scripture with the name Jehovah or Yahweh. Names representing seven aspects of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness in his dealings with man. In my last three talks, I've dealt with the first three of these covenant names. The first, the one who provides. The second, the one who heals. The third, the one who is our banner. Let me pause for a moment and suggest that if you're able to follow this series through this week, you try to commit to memory these seven names in their correct order. All right, today I'm going to speak about the fourth of these covenant names of Jehovah, the one who is our peace. This name is revealed in the book of Judges, chapter 6. It's an incident in the life of Gideon. At this time, a Gentile nation from the east, the Midianites, had overrun the land of the Israelites and were grievously oppressing them. And the Israelites were living almost like refugees in their own land. And a young man named Gideon was surreptitiously threshing wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites because they would have taken the wheat from him if they'd seen him. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and told him that he was to become the Lord's instrument to defeat the Midianites and to deliver the Israelites. Gideon found this very hard to believe. He thought he was very inadequate for the task, but the angel of the Lord told him that he would be a mighty man of valor and gave him the strategy by which he was to conquer the Midianites. Then at the end, Gideon wanted to know more of this angel who had appeared to him and wanted to offer him a sacrifice. So this is the part of the story that I'm going to read to you now in Judges 6, beginning in verse 17. So Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, If now I have found favor in thy sight, then show me a sign that it is thou who speakest with me. Please do not depart from here, until I come back to thee, and bring out my offering, and lay it before thee. And the angel said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a kid and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, and brought them out to him under the oak, and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, and lay them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, and you shall not die was generally believed at that time that if you were to see an angel or the Lord, you would probably not survive the sight. So Gideon felt that his last moment had come. But the Lord said to him, Don't fear, you're not going to die. So in gratitude for this, and as a response to the revelation that he had received, Gideon built an altar. This is what it says in verse 24, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. Most of us are familiar with the Hebrew word for peace. It's shalom. It's the contemporary greeting in modern Hebrew. The Lord is shalom, peace. That was the name of the altar. To this day, it is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So we see that here we have revealed this fourth aspect of the Lord's covenant-keeping faithfulness to his people, that he is his people's peace. Peace 
is in a person. And that person is the Lord himself. Uh, there are two applications to the revelation of peace. There are two ways that we need peace. First of all, we need peace with God. A personal relationship with the Lord that assures us his favor, his blessing. And always in the scripture, that peace with God is assured only through a sacrifice. Apart from a sacrifice and a life laid down and blood that is shed, there can be no peace with God. Secondly, we need peace, not just as our relationship with God, but in the midst of all that we find coming against us. Even in the midst of war and tumult, God offers his people peace. Peace is not just the absence of war. Actually, it's possible to have peace in the midst of war, conflict and pressure and turmoil because peace is based on that relationship with God. It's not based on circumstances. If you look at your circumstances, many times you find that there's no cause for peace. But if you've learnt the truth that's in this covenant name of Jehovah, that he is our peace, then you can have peace in the midst of any circumstances that may come against you. So let's look at it from two points of view. First of all, our relationship with the Lord, then the outworking of that relationship in our lives, in the midst of our circumstances. Let's look first of all at what the Scripture has to say about peace between God and man. Of course, there's much about that in the New Testament. I'll read only two passages. First of all, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is our peace. And in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So we see there, the second aspect of that truth that peace is achieved only by a sacrifice. The sacrifice that finally achieved eternal peace between God and man was the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross and the blood that he shed. But through him we do have peace with God. Contrast what Isaiah says in the 57th chapter of Isaiah verses 20-21. For the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So there's a very definite dividing line. Those who are reconciled with God through Jesus Christ and receive his righteousness know what it is to have peace with God. But for the wicked, God says, there is no peace. Sin never leaves us in peace. Even though there may be nothing in our outward circumstances, there's something in our hearts that never can rest while sin rules in our hearts. Now we look at the second outworking of peace, the peace that we can have in the midst of war and tumult. And oh, how important it is to know that kind of peace in today's world. In John 14:27, Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I've always been so glad for those words, not as the world gives because the world's most strenuous attempts at peace are so fragile, so impermanent, so unsatisfying. And if we depended on the world for our peace, we indeed would have very little. But Jesus says, I give you a peace that's not the same as the world gives. And you don't need to be fearful. You don't need to be troubled. And then again he says in John 16:33, These things have I spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's the altar, the Lord, our peace. Jesus is our peace. He has overcome the world. Therefore the world can never overcome us, because he is in us and with us. Also, we have peace with those who have been reconciled to Jesus, no matter who they are, from what race, from what background. Being reconciled to God through Jesus brings us into a relationship of peace with other believers. Hear what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 13 through 17, writing to believers from Gentile background. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who hath made both groups into one, and broken down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Notice the emphasis on peace all through this and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. The message of the cross is peace. Peace with God, peace in the middle of turmoil, and peace with our fellow believers. I'm always reminded of the ark of Noah, which became God's means of salvation to Noah and his family. Think of Noah and his family in the ark. There they were in the midst of the raging elements. Everything around them had gone under the waters. But in that ark, they had peace and security. The very thing that brought judgment and destruction to the world brought peace and salvation to them. And then think of all those animals in the ark, animals of such different types, animals that were by nature enemies of one another. But in the ark, there was peace. That tells me that when those animals entered into the ark, they underwent a change of nature. And all that to me is a beautiful picture of Christ. When we enter into Christ, we enter into peace. Even though there may be others of different races that we would have hated, when we're in that ark, we know peace with them. And in the midst of the raging turmoil of this life, we know peace in our hearts because we have peace with God through the Lord who is our peace. In my past four talks, I've been dealing with the covenant names of Jehovah, names that portray various aspects of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness in his dealings with man. The four names I've dealt with so far are, first, the one who provides, second, the one who heals, third, the one who is our banner, fourth, the one who is our peace. Let me say those again. And you remember I suggested that you might try in the course of this week to memorize them. I believe it would be a tremendous source of encouragement to you. The four names I've already dealt with are first, the one who provides, second, the one who heals, third, the one who is our banner, fourth, the one who is our peace. Today I'm going to deal with the fifth of these covenant names, the one who is our shepherd. For this I turn to one of the most familiar passages of the scripture, the 23rd Psalm, so often called the Shepherd's Psalm. And in the course of my talk today I'll be working through the verses of this psalm in order. We'll begin with verse 1 where this title of Jehovah is found, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm amazed how much scripture can say in so few words particularly in the original Hebrew. It might interest you to know that in Hebrew that entire first verse of Psalm 23 consists of only four words. I'll say them for you in Hebrew. Adonai ro'i, that's the Lord is my shepherd. Lo echsar, I shall not want. Think how much is contained in those four words. Saying it again in English, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's the most amazing statement, isn't it? I shall not want. Every need that could ever arise in my life will be met. I'll never find myself in a situation where there is something that I really need that is not available to me. The Lord has guaranteed that to me out of His relationship with me and mine with Him because the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. The Living Bible says, Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. Think of all that's contained in that beautiful name, the Lord, my shepherd. So important to see that it's a personal relationship with God as a person. And this is the basis for everything else. It's also an individual relationship. David says, The Lord is my shepherd. It's very direct, very personal. In Psalm 80, verse 1, which is a psalm of David, David says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou who dost lead Joseph like a flock, thou who art enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. So the Lord is the shepherd of Israel as a people. And David could have said in Psalm 23, The Lord is our shepherd. But it wouldn't have meant nearly as much as saying, 
The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that? The Lord is my shepherd. Do you have that individual, direct, personal relationship with the Lord? I remember having grown up in the Anglican Church in Britain where I was always trying to speak about Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. I met a little lady in a humble home and she said, My Lord. And a little while later she said, My Savior. And I thought to myself, I can't say that. I don't have that relationship. In a general way, I can say our Lord and our Savior. But I don't understand how she can say my Lord and my Savior. Thank God today I do. I have that relationship. It's individual. It's personal. It's direct. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's look at what flows out of this relationship in the rest of the psalm. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The Lord provides all the nourishment that I need. Of course, primarily we're thinking in terms of spiritual nourishment. He gives me clear, pure water and fresh, clean grass. Everything is clean, fresh, and health-giving. Verse 3, He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. I love that word restore. It means to put back in the right condition, to refresh, to renew. Do you ever feel jaded and tired and worn, frayed? Do you know that it's possible to have your soul restored? The Lord can put you back fresh, confident, strong. He restores our soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. He makes sure that I follow the right way. You know there are so many ways in life, so many choices. Do you ever feel confused and uncertain as to which road to take? When you know the Lord is your shepherd, he leads you and he guides you in the paths of righteousness. And then it says, for his name's sake. That blesses me too. Because his name doesn't change. It doesn't depend on whether I'm weak or strong. It depends on his name. His honor is at stake. He's guaranteed his name that he's going to do it. His name is attached to the very word shepherd. The Lord, my shepherd. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. There come times in life when we do go through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't think that's always when we're personally at death's door, but there are times when we go through darkness. Everything seems to cave in. Everything seems to go wrong. We don't know where to turn. We don't know whom to trust. The pressures build up. But you can say like David, even in the midst of that valley, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. His presence is guaranteed. David goes on, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know, there are two aspects to that. At least, this is the way I see it. The rod is discipline. The staff is comfort. Sometimes we want the staff, but not the rod. But you'll notice the rod comes first. When we accept God's discipline in our lives, then his comfort is made available to us. So even in the midst of the valley, the dark valley, the dark lonely valley, I remember lying one year on end in hospital with a disease that doctors apparently were not able to cure. Believe me, that was a dark, long, lonely valley. But the Lord was with me all through it and brought me out at the other end stronger than I'd ever been before. The Lord is my shepherd. We're speaking about that covenant name, the Lord is my shepherd. We're following through the outworking of this in that beautiful shepherd psalm, Psalm 23. We look now at verse 5. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. What really blesses me there is that all this is in the presence of our enemies. Right there where everything is against us, God provides the best. He, he spreads a banquet. He prepares a table. And there are our enemies like wolves out in the darkness, scared away by the light of the campfire, prowling round but afraid to come into the light. And there God provides his best. It would be good to have a banquet provided by the Lord anywhere, but it's twice as good to have it in the presence of your enemies. And to know that because the Lord is there, He's the shepherd, they can't touch you. They cannot touch you. You're safe. 
even in the presence of your enemies. Then David says, Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. That oil, I believe, it always in the Scriptures is a type of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's anointing brings a joy that's not dependent on circumstances. Our cup overflows. Not merely do we have enough for ourselves, we have enough for others. And then come to that last verse, verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, no matter what situation we're in, no matter what we have to go through, there are two unchangeable factors in our lives. The goodness of the Lord and the loving kindness of the Lord. That word loving kindness in Hebrew is chesed. It particularly means the faithfulness of God to his covenant commitment. So the Lord is committed to be my shepherd. He'll never break it. His goodness and loving kindness are always with me. And then consider the meaning of that last sentence. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know what that tells me? Whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm going, I'm on my way home. I'm going home to the place that the Lord has provided for me. I live on a little island in the middle of the city where I am. And there's just one road on, and it's the same road off. There used to be a sign as you got to the bridge that led onto that little island that said dead end because there was no exit. And I used to look at that sign and say to myself, dead end. And then I'd say, well, it may be a dead end for some people, but for me it's the way home. And that's how it is if you know the Lord, what others call a dead end for you is the way home you know that you're going to be living in the house of the Lord forever. No matter what you have to go through, he'll be with you, and you know your destination. You're on your way home. No dead ends for you, dead ends for the people that don't know God, but for you the dead end is the way home. So that's just a personal reflection on that beautiful psalm. In my previous talks, I've been dealing with the seven covenant names of Jehovah, names that portray various aspects of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness in his dealings with man. The five covenant names that I've dealt with so far are, and now I'm going to list them, and if you're following these talks each day this week, I suggest you try to memorize these names. First, the one who provides. Second, the one who heals. Third, the one who is our banner. Fourth, the one who is our peace. Fifth, the one who is our shepherd. Today I'm going to deal with the sixth of these covenant names, the one who is our righteousness. This name is found in one of the many promises of restoration given to Israel found in the prophets, all of which center in the Messiah. This particular one is found in Jeremiah 23, Verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. That's one of the common titles of Messiah in the Old Testament, the branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. That's the sixth covenant name. The Lord our Righteousness. Restoration includes the restoration of righteousness. In fact, without that, other forms of restoration ultimately would be impossible or worthless. So God is going to restore righteousness to his people. But the righteousness that he's promised to restore is in a person. Notice, the Lord our righteousness. It's not in a system of law or religion, but it's in a person. And that person is the promised Messiah. You see, there are two kinds of righteousness. It's important to see this. One is our own righteousness, what we would call self-righteousness. And this is not acceptable to God. In Isaiah 64, verse 6, Isaiah says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Notice that. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. We could easily understand that if Isaiah had said all our sins are like a filthy garment. 
but he says all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. In other words, even the best that we can achieve in our own righteousness is totally unacceptable to God. It falls far below the standard of righteousness that God requires. So we're faced with the alternatives. The kind of righteousness that we receive in a person, in the Messiah, in Jesus, or the kind of righteousness we achieve by our own efforts. And they are mutually exclusive. We cannot offer God both. This is Paul's determination, recorded in Philippians 3.9. He says that I may be found in him, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Notice Paul had to renounce the kind of righteousness he could achieve by his own efforts in order that he might obtain the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. See, the great mistake that Israel made in their history, the one that has had such a harmful effect on their destiny for 2,000 years, is that they sought the wrong kind of righteousness. Paul explains this in Romans 10, 3 and 4, speaking about Israel. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. See, it's important. We see that. The death of Christ on the cross expiated the sins and shortcomings of all who had failed to observe the law and provided another means of righteousness which is through faith in Christ. But those who seek to establish their own righteousness do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, which is through Christ. The phrase, did not subject themselves, indicates that there's a kind of self-humbling that we have to go through, first renouncing our own righteousness, acknowledging that our own efforts have not achieved that which God requires, and then accepting God's offer of mercy and righteousness through faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul speaks about the righteousness that's made available to us through Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, there was an exchange made at the cross. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness. He became the sin offering, the great sin offering that was promised in Isaiah 53.10. His soul became the sin offering. And he became sin for us, that we might have the other aspect of the exchange, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How foolish to cling on to our own righteousness when we can have, by faith, the righteousness of God in Christ. And so this covenant name, the Lord our righteousness, like all the other covenant names in the Old Testament, points ultimately to Jesus and to the cross. That's where the exchange took place. That's where it became possible for him to become our righteousness. After he had atoned for the sins of those who had failed to observe the law, then he was made available to us as our righteousness, a person who is our righteousness, the Lord who is our righteousness. Israel's restoration to God's favor is also pictured as the restoration of a marriage relationship. It's as though Israel, through the covenant made at Sinai, had been married to Jehovah, but then their unfaithfulness and their idolatry broke that marriage relationship. But restoration is pictured in terms of a marriage relationship restored. This we find in many of the prophets. I'm going to read just a few passages and then bring out a beautiful truth that results. In Hosea 2:19 and 20, the Lord says to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. You see, the word betroth indicates the restoration of the marriage relationship between the Lord and his people. And then there's this beautiful passage in Isaiah 61:10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. 
For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Notice that robe of righteousness that covers us completely. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And then again in Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, a promise to Israel's land and to Israel as a people. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. But you will be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. So you see, restoration of righteousness brings the restoration of that marriage relationship. The Lord can be married once more to his people because their sins have been atoned for and they're clothed with the robe of his righteousness. And this is brought out also in a very beautiful way in the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, we read the passage where it says, This is the name by which he, the Lord, will be called. But now let me read to you from Jeremiah 33, and you'll see what I call the other side of the coin, the corresponding passage. Jeremiah 33:15 and 16. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. I pointed out the righteous branch is always the Messiah. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Can you see the meaning of it? First of all, this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. He is our righteousness. But when he takes his people back to himself in righteousness, and when his people again become his bride, then just as in human marriage customs, the bride takes the name of the bridegroom. The Lord, he is our righteousness. But when we're united to him, then our name becomes the Lord our righteousness. We are clothed with his righteousness. We're identified with him. He himself becomes our righteousness. We're no longer dependent on our own efforts, our struggles. We're no longer held back by our failures and our sins. We've moved into a new relationship with God, a person-to-person -person relationship in which the Lord himself is our righteousness. And we're so identified with him that as a bride bears the bridegroom's name, so we bear his name, the Lord, our righteousness. From the end of last week and on through this week, I've been dealing with the seven covenant names of Jehovah, names that portray various aspects of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness in his dealings with man. And you remember I suggested that you'd find it a blessing to memorize those names. So far we've looked together at six of these covenant names. First, the one who provides. Second, the one who heals. Third, the one who is our banner. Fourth, the one who is our peace. Fifth, the one who is our shepherd. Sixth, the one who is our righteousness. Today I'm going to speak about the seventh and last of these covenant names, the one who is there, ever-present. This name is found in the last verse of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. It says this, the city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be The Lord is There. That's the name. The Lord is There. The last eight or nine chapters of Ezekiel, again, are connected with the restoration of Israel. And they describe both the rebuilding of a city and the building of a temple. And tremendous details are given us about the construction of the temple, the materials, the dimensions, and so on. And then when the temple and the city are complete, its name is given to it. The Lord is there. This brings out, of course, the real purpose for building both the city and the temple. The purpose being that it should be a dwelling place for the Lord. 
It's as though the Lord waits till everything is complete and exactly the way he wants it. And then he says, all right, now this is going to be my dwelling place. I'm going to be there. We should look for a moment at the background to this whole situation. One major theme of Ezekiel is the glory of the Lord. And God's glory is his manifest presence among his people presence of the Lord in a way that it can be detected by human senses, by the eyes and by the other senses. The Hebrew word for that is Shekinah or Shekinah and that comes from a word which means to dwell. So this is God dwelling among his people, his presence manifested to them. Now in the opening of the prophecy of Ezekiel, God's glory was still in the temple in Jerusalem. But because of Israel's continuing sin and rebelliousness, God had to withdraw his personal presence. His glory departed from the temple and from the city. This is described as Ezekiel saw it himself in Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 22 and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, and stood over the mountain which is east of the city, that's the Mount of Olives. So you see at this point, God was so grieved by the sin of his people that he withdrew his presence from the city and from the temple. The glory of the Lord went out of the midst of the city and went away eastward and hovered for a while over the Mount of Olives to the east of the city. After the withdrawing of the Lord's glory, then terrible judgments are predicted in the prophecies that follow. But always interspersed with these judgments are the promises of restoration. And then we come to the closing chapters of Ezekiel, which are the description of restoration. And the focus, the center, the most important part of all restoration is the restoration of the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, to the temple. The essence of it is described in Ezekiel 43, 1-7. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. That was the way in which the glory of the Lord had departed, toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, from the same direction in which he departed he was returning. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kiba. And I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. The Lord had come right back into the inner court of the house. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house, while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. You see the essence? It's the return of the visible, manifest presence of the Lord to dwell again with his people forever. And this brings out what is the ultimate purpose of God in his dealings with man. So often we've got the wrong impression. We think that God's ultimate purpose is somehow to get man to heaven and that really isn't it God's purpose is to bring heaven down to man and above all to bring his own personal presence down to man this is true of every structure that the Lord had built for him it was the purpose of the tabernacle of Moses it was the purpose of the temple of Solomon always it was to be a dwelling place where God could dwell in the midst of his people and never have to leave them but alas in the course of the history of God's people up to this time, they have behaved in such a way that the Lord had to withdraw his glory. However, the Lord persists in his purpose. Let's look on for a moment to the end of the Bible, and we see that the purpose remains unchanged. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. That's the climax. 
That's the outworking of the divine purpose in human history. Not that God would get man up to heaven, but that God would so deal with man as to make him fit to receive God's presence as a dwelling place on earth. Let me read those last words again. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, they shall be his people, God himself shall be among them. Now let's return to the climax of God's purpose as revealed at the close of Ezekiel. I'll read that verse again. Ezekiel 48:35, the last verse of Ezekiel. The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be The Lord is there. That's the consummation of the divine purpose. It's also the seventh and the last of the covenant names of Jehovah, of Yahweh, the Lord. Let's go back and look at those seven names in their completeness. Meditate for a moment on what it means. The first, the one who provides. The second, the one who heals. The third, the one who is our banner. The fourth, the one who is our peace. The fifth, the one who is our shepherd. The sixth, the one who is our righteousness. And then, the seventh, the one who is there. Always there. Just where you need him. By your side. Right with you every moment. The one who provides, who heals, who is our banner, who is our peace, who is our shepherd, who is our righteousness. He's right there. That's his purpose. To dwell forever with his people. And this is his purpose for each one of us individually, that each one of us should know him as a permanent, indwelling Lord, the Lord who's always there, right in the midst of our hearts and lives. I wonder if you know the Lord in that way. Have you ever invited the Lord to make his dwelling in your heart and your life? God wants you to do that. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. You see, that's the Lord's desire. That's his purpose, to come into you, to make your heart and your life his home, his permanent dwelling place, in all his covenant fullness, in every one of those aspects of his covenant nature. He wants to come in and dwell in your heart and life. But he's a gentleman. He won't push his way in. You have to open the door. You have to invite him in. Would you like to do that? May I ask you to do that right now? Will you say just a very brief prayer after me? Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead. And I invite you now to come and dwell in my heart and be my Savior and my Lord. Now thank him. Just begin to thank him. He was just waiting for the opportunity to come in. The moment you opened the door, he came in. And life is going to be different. This great, wonderful, covenant-keeping God is not someone you just hear about. He's someone who's there, forever there. For more great teaching from Derek Prince, tune in to Derek Prince Legacy Radio on a station in your area. Or you can listen online anytime at DerekPrince.org.